0: Can you hear it? See it? Feel it? The it which I refer to is the start of summer. Because this weekend's Memorial Day weekend, summer's official start, so take it all in and enjoy it, constant listeners. Life is always good, but it's even better when you've got the weather opening up all kinds of additional pursuits and adventures. So welcome to the far middle, Memorial Day weekend and start of summer style. By the way, last weekend on May 20th, we celebrated Armed Forces Day, So this week is nestled between Armed Forces Day and Memorial Day. And of course, we have Veterans Day in the fall. And often people confuse these three days. So here's a cheat sheet because getting them right, that's important. So you pay the proper respect. Memorial Day, that commemorates all those who have served and fallen while uh, being in the Armed Forces. Uh, Veterans Day, that's the honors to those that have served in the Armed Forces. And then Armed Forces Day this past weekend That's for honoring all those currently serving in the armed forces, the active, so to speak. Okay, good. Now, if you are new to the far middle, welcome and thank you for investing a half hour of your week. I hope you like what you hear. What we try to do with the far middle is embrace a thought that was provided by literary great John Steinbeck. I'm a bit of a different persuasion than Steinbeck from a policy and ideological pair of standpoints. He was of a socialist bent. I am of a libertarian bent. But that man was such a gifted, one of a kind writer. And Steinbeck, he once said, In this I believe, that the free, exploring mind of the individual human is the most valuable thing in the world. You know, I agree with what Steinbeck articulated with that statement. People think far too little these days, and the individual faces too many explicit and implicit constraints on expressing free thought, particularly rational thought. So this podcast strives to embody Steinbeck's view and serves as a celebration of the exploring mind of the individual human. And unfortunately, that's been under attack and painted as a scary thing of late. The far middle looks to change those things. The dedication for episode 105 from the world of sports is a very cool one, if I may say so myself. It really starts off with a question that I like to kick around with my sports buddies. If you could attend one game from pick your sport, a given sport from any era, which game would it be for each sport and why? Now you can go round and round for hours on that topic because there are a lot of different plausible answers. It's a great conversation starter. With this being the start of summer, I want to focus our attention on that topical and thought-provoking question to the boys of summer because in the sport of baseball, there is one game that I would absolutely pick every time to go back in time and attend. It's impossible, I believe, to argue with or beat, and it ties directly to the date of when we first air this episode 105, which is May 24th, because on May 24th, back in 1928, something happened on a baseball diamond in North Philadelphia, known as Shibe Park, that has not been bested since. That's where, on May 24, 1928, in the first game of a doubleheader between the Yankees and the Philadelphia A's, which were the American League's top two teams at the time, more than a dozen Future Hall of Famers took the field in front of some 45,000 crazed baseball fans. The Hall of Fame wasn't established until 1936, so no one knew history was happening at the time of the first game of that doubleheader. But uh, the names that showed up that day in Philly, let me run through a few of the notables for you. And I'm going to start with the evil empire side, or the Yankees. The Yankees in the 1920s, of course, they were a powerhouse for the ages thanks to Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, and that duo were both present that day in Philadelphia. By the way, Babe played left field in that game. The Yanks also had Earl Combs, who was their leadoff hitter, who's in the Hall of Fame, although I will say I think that Earl Combs is a questionable member based on just statistics. And the Yankees also had Tony Lazari at second, another Hall of Famer, I think a more solid choice than Combs. So you add that up, that's four all-time greats in the starting lineup for the Yankees, and technically five when you add in Leo DeRocher, who was their rookie shortstop that game. Leo the lip, he's in the hall, but for his managerial achievements, not so much for his performance as a player. So arguably five Hall of Famers on the field for the Yankees that day. And the Philadelphia A's, they were no slouches because they sported an impressive lineup of their own. Some of these greats you know well if you follow baseball, but you don't typically associate them with the A's. The best example is Ty Cobb, who played right field for the A's that day at 41 years of age. And along with Cobb was Tris Speaker, who played center and remains the all-time Major League Baseball career doubles record holder, who was 40 years old at the time of that game. Now, of course, Cobb is known more for his days with the Tigers. Speaker is more associated with the Red Sox and the Indians. So how did these two all-time greats end up playing for the A's in their 40s? Well, because of a little controversy more specifically, a joint controversy that they were both part of. You see, at the end of the 1926 season, a few years earlier, both were pressured by the league into resigning as managers of the Tigers and the Indians, respectively, after it was alleged that the two colluded to fix a Tigers-Indians game in 1919, which happens to be the same year as the infamous World Series fix with the Black Sox scandal. Now, both denied wrongdoing, and eventually baseball commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis exonerated them, Cobb came out of retirement to join the A's as a right fielder, and then Speaker joined Philly just after that. The A's also started that game with a Hall of Fame pair of battery mates of Mickey Cochran, a catcher, and Lefty Grove on the mound. Both had stellar careers that redefined both positions, and they may indeed, I think, represent the best pitcher-catcher pairings ever for a game. The only other pairing I could think of that would come close would be Whitey Ford and Yogi Berra with the Yankees in the 1950s, I'd put them at second. I still think that uh, the Cochran and Grove are the all-time you know, greatest pair of battery mates that you'll find in baseball. The pinch hitters and the, uh, the relievers in this game, they could fill a wing of Cooperstown. Coming out of the bullpen for the Yankees later in the game was future Hall of Famer Wade Hoyt. Three more Hall of Famers came off the bench as pinch hitters for the A's. Uh, Eddie Collins, Al Simmons, and a young 20-year-old Jimmy Fox. Collins finished his career with over 3,300 hits and alongside Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker, that gave these A's three of, at the time, six members of the 3,000-hit club that played that day. Fox, and that's double X in terms of how you spell his name, he would hit 534 home runs, more than any player when he was done besides Babe Ruth to that point in baseball history. And this game featured what once ranked as four of the top five home run hitters, with Babe Ruth, Jimmy Fox, Lou Gehrig, and Al Simmons. So that's 13 Hall of Famers on the mound or at bat that game, counting Leo DeRocher. Never been bested since, and if that wasn't enough, consider both managers in that game. They're also Hall of Famers. Connie Mack for the A's, who, by the way, also owned the team. He managed an astounding 50 years, and of course he holds the all-time records for wins, losses, and games. Miller Huggins managed the Yankees, and lest I forget the umpire for the game, Tom Connolly. He's also in the Hall of Fame. That's sixteen. Hall of Famers, who played a direct role in that game. And some of those 16, of course, being the greatest names in the history of baseball. Now, the Yankees, by the way, they ended up winning a game, which was an exciting one, in the ninth. So let's dedicate episode 105 to that game on May 24th, 1928, a true field of dreams. If you dare to disagree with my assessment of this being the one game above all the other baseball games that you'd want to go back in time and attend, let me know which one beats this one. I'd love to compare notes. And by the way, all-star games don't count. So it'll be fun to do this, I think, for football and basketball and hockey in future episodes of The Far Middle, maybe even boxing. Um, Those sports get a little trickier to select the game, but I will put that in the For Future Consideration file in The Far Middle bunker. Another unique aspect of The Far Middle for those new constant listeners in the making is to mirror the construct of the BBC television history and technology documentary series Connections from back in the 1970s with that effervescent host, Dr. James Burke. He would connect one innovation or historical event to the next and take a viewer from hundreds of years in the past to some sort of a modern technology of today in each episode. So allow me to to demonstrate how it works with our humble podcast. Many of the baseball player greats in that game back in 1928, they came from hard scrabble backgrounds and were self-made. They came from mines and mills and basically nothing, and they had just this drive to achieve. And if they wanted something, they had to earn it. So nothing was given. It was the culture of America, and it worked. Now, let's connect that drive of, say, Lou Gehrig or Babe Ruth, both who grew up in extremely tough conditions, to what a great American had to say on the topic of self-worth and accomplishment. The American I speak of is none other than President Abraham Lincoln, and Lincoln deeply valued the self-made individual he stated numerous times that there's no more trustworthy person than an individual who rose from poverty because they respected what honestly was earned, and they've been there. But Lincoln, you know, he was worried about losing one key aspect of the ability of Americans to rise up to better stations in life. That's the loss of vigilance. What he said was, quote, let them beware of surrendering a political power which they already possess, and which if surrendered, Will surely be used to close the door of advancement against such people as they, and to fix new disabilities and burdens upon them till all of liberty shall be lost." I think Lincoln was sort of foreshadowing to some challenges that we're experiencing today in America. I worry about this foreshadowing because the thing that Lincoln so feared, that lack of vigilance in key components of our society, is occurring on a massive scale in modern America. In fact, what we are suffering from is far worse than a lack of vigilance. Instead, what we're experiencing is a conscious, intentional dereliction of duty by key institutions in America, and a big part of the loss of vigilance or dereliction of duty, it starts with our elected Congress. Allow me to explain. Civics 101, what did it tell us? It told us that Congress is elected by the people and that Congress plays a crucial role in enacting statutes or law. So, you go back to Saturday morning Schoolhouse Rock for you old timers like myself and recall the I'm Just a Bill skit. Once the bill is passed by Congress, and if it's signed by the president, it of course becomes law. And the executive branch is going to be the entity that will be tasked with enforcing the law that was just passed. Now, the I'm Just a Bill Civics 101 process of a Republican democracy is not what's happening today in America because Congress has become comfortable. With delegating its duty to pass laws that can be specific enough and clear enough for the executive branch of government to follow. And instead, Congress has become used to passing laws that are very vague and cloudy and squishy as to what the specific intent is or should be. So they delegate, Congress delegates the interpretation to the executive branch, which is often a faceless and unelected bureaucrat who will never be held accountable to the voter or to the efficacy of the enactment of the law. Worse yet, The executive branch and the bureaucrat and administrative state, they're going to use these vague laws or statutes to interpret them widely so the administrative state can grow its size and power and control. Now, you might be thinking, why would Congress ever want to not hold on to its duty and its influence that was granted to it under the Constitution? And that's a great question. I mean, politicians are not shy about desiring power or peddling influence, but think about it. Many laws are going to involve tough um, decisions And not just tough decisions, but also unpopular and tough decisions. And House members in Congress have to run for election every two years. Senators, of course, every six. You make the right calls on votes to pass laws, but if those laws upset enough voters, you're out of a job come election time. But if you pass a very general or vague enough law on the matter at hand, using phraseology like to improve air quality or to provide clean water, or to benefit the public good, or to use reasonable measures and the like, use that type of phraseology, you can't be criticized for the details that will follow. The bureaucrat will take the vague law, be free to enforce it just as they see fit, and if it results in damage to voters in a congressional district here or there, that politician can blame the bureaucrat, who remember is not elected or accountable to the people, and then the politician enjoys plausible deniability quite a a devious situation for the politicians and the bureaucrats, but not a good situation for the citizen and certainly not consistent with our system of government under the Constitution. Now, this uh, congressional dereliction of duty to lead on straightforward statutes, Congress's inability to do that, I believe, has been the single biggest contributor to how our government has mushroomed out of control since the days of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Also, the biggest reason why our national debt is over $31 trillion with no end in sight, why we can't balance budgets, and why we can't hold debt flat or reduce the national debt. I wrote a book on it, Constant Listeners, and its title is Precipice, The Left's Campaign to Destroy America. I encourage you to give it a read if you haven't already. And I wrote the book prior to the pandemic shutdowns mandated by government. And I published the book just after the shutdowns. And I'll tell you, the degree as to how accurate the book's premise has become sort of makes me shiver. But give it a read and let me know what you think. But the biggest damage tied to this phenomenon of Congress delegating blindly to the bureaucratic state through vague statutes and, and not having Congress performance duty is that it wrecks the free market. It destroys meritocracy. It harms the capitalistic economy. And those are the things that made the Babe Ruths and the Lou Gehrigs and the Abe Lincolns. What is happening is exactly, and I mean exactly, what Lincoln warned us about from that passage that I read to you. Now, what would happen... If you took this process of dereliction of duty by the elected Congress and a willing usurping of legislative power by the administrative state, and you coupled it with a president who was of leftist leaning, it's what's happening with the current administration. So consider the following fact pattern from the past two years. On day one of the new presidency, the president instructed every department, agency, and office of the federal government to perform cost-benefit analyses for regulations where social welfare is counted, um, where environmental stewardship is counted, equity is considered, human dignity, and the interests of future generations. So think about those terms. How does one objectively assess those when you're weighing the costs and benefits of regulations from the executive branch and the bureaucratic state? Well, the stark answer is any way the bureaucrat pleases to weigh them. So this day one edict from the White House was telling the administrative state that it was going to enjoy open-season carte blanche authority to do whatever it damn well pleased. And boy, did it go about doing just that. You see it in the math of how the costs and benefits of regulations are gamed and stacked to favor the desired outcome. The bureaucrats use discount rates that, a fraction, that represent a fraction only of inflation when they desire to show the manufactured benefits of desired regulations are large. It's sort of fabricating falsehood through manipulated math. And here's an example that we're all familiar with, the arena and the industry of cars. The Department of Transportation misuses fuel economy standards to mandate electric vehicles by setting the fuel economy standards so high that combustion engines, they can't meet them. And clearly, that wasn't within the original law Congress passed or the intent of it when it comes to fuel economy standards. But Congress doesn't object Indeed, many in Congress cheer on the Department of Transportation for usurping congressional power. And then when consumers, also known as voters, express their displeasure as to why they're forced to buy electric vehicles, the politician shrug the shoulder and says, well, those darn bureaucrats at the Department of Transportation. If you've got a 401k retirement account, you're being subjected to this as well. The Labor Department is forcing retirement plans to ignore ERISA's requirement to have fiduciaries make investments solely in the interest of the investor. Now the fiduciary running your 401k is to make investments with your money that save the planet or promote equity or whatever, which means they can pursue whatever favorite agenda they desire, and they will do just that without any law from Congress instructing them to do so. In fact, as I said, the law that is out there prohibits them from doing so when it comes to ERISA. Crazy, but it's reality today. And federal regulators look to eradicate the domestic energy industry and oil and pipelines and natural gas and nuclear and coal. But there was never a law passed by an elected Congress that instructed the government agencies to do so. Massive amounts of student loans were forgiven by the executive branch, and you won't find a statute passed by Congress telling it to do so. And on and on it goes. And what is killing the private sector? And free enterprise and meritocracy and capitalism is this very phenomenon, which means it's killing the ability of the individual to achieve the next Babe Ruth, Steve Jobs, the next Google, and so on. And it's killing innovation, the next energy breakthrough and the next miracle drug or device and so on. If Lincoln was worried back then when he spoke those words, we should be terrified today. That view that Lincoln articulated the importance of having an economic, cultural, and political system that embraces the self-made individual and how it's essential to the fabric of America, you know, even though it's clearly under attack today at the United States, there are more modern thinkers who toil to fight the good fight that Lincoln was defending. And one such thinker is the American economist and writer Francis Fukuyama. Some of you may have read his most famous book, The End of History and the Last Man or perhaps his essay, which is excellent. It's titled The End of History. Some say he's one of the uh, the founders of the neoconservative movement. I'm not uh, sure about that, but I am very keen to highlight a comment that Fukuyama made a few years back about the importance of American, I guess, exceptionalism, I suppose would be the best term. So call it what you like, but listen uh, to what Fukuyama had to say. He said, A civilization devoid of anyone who wanted to be recognized as better than others, and which did not affirm in some way the essential health and goodness of such a desire, would have little art of literature, music, or intellectual life. It would be incompetently governed, for few people of quality would choose a life of public service. It would not have much in the way of economic dynamism. Its crafts and industries would be pedestrian and unchanging, and its technology second rate. Hmm. Fukuyama nailed it, didn't he? In three sentences, he summarized perfectly what makes America the unparalleled beacon it has become for humanity. And he also articulated to perfection what uh, the consequences would look like if that, dare I say, American exceptionalism were to be squandered or eroded. Now, what sobers me is how eerily similar today's United States feels and looks compared to Fukuyama's description of a failing society. Just run through some of the descriptions. You'll start with how he identified a root cause that will create the negative consequences, which is a civilization that does not affirm the essential goodness of individuals wanting to be recognized as better or achieving. Today, across the Western world, the concepts of equity and equal outcomes that trying to drive stakes through the hearts of the concepts of meritocracy and capitalism and individual exceptionalism. You see it everywhere across government, media, academia, and unfortunately a growing portion of the private sector. And Fukuyama warns us of a negative consequence of such a society would be the dilution and the loss of the impactfulness of the arts, whether it's books, music, or philosophy. And I can't help but think about today's music scene and its complete lack of exceptionalism, or how reality shows are what serve as cutting-edge cinema and must-see viewing these days, or how our cultural art doesn't stink as much as it is bland which one could argue is a worse sin than saying that it stinks. Our cultural arts don't elicit anything these days other than a pretty set of optics that covers a hollowness or nothingness when it comes to substance. And you may have noticed, Fukuyama pointed out that when you lose the desire to acknowledge accomplishment of the individual, you end up being governed by the incompetent. We don't need to go down that path in this episode. I read somewhere once that some truths are self-evident, but also the view of the Francis Fukuyama uh, sort of perspective of the world, that people of skill and people of talent, they would not desire to seek public service. That's true today in America from cops to teachers to the highest office of the, of the land. Uh, competent individuals who would be great in those roles, they look to the environment around them and they basically say no thanks. And finally, from that passage was the prediction that a meritless society would be subpar when it comes to economy and industry and technology. Look around the U.S. economy today or that of Europe. Does it or they feel dynamic to you? Do they feel like they are on the rise or on the decline? Is it survival of the fittest or more along the lines of subsidy of the favored? Francis Fukuyama, like many economists and thinkers, he may have gotten some things wrong in hindsight that's always going to be 2020. His essay, The End of History, uh, was penned in the late 1980s, I think 1989, uh, during the fall of the USSR. And the world has certainly changed greatly since then, particularly with one communist power being vanquished while another one is on the rise, the Soviet Union and China, respectively. But on this topic, and with respect to that passage, Fukuyama got everything right. And that is very worrisome for you and I looking at America down the barrel of mid-2023. If you take a step back philosophically from Fukuyama and Lincoln, what we're talking about ties to a topic we covered in a prior far middle episode. That's the concept of Tumas. I guess this is a inter episode connection versus our standard intra episode connection. The Greeks identified Tumas as drive or fire in the belly, uh, the need for recognition and achievement that humans and individuals exhibit to varying degrees person by person. Lincoln was effectively saying America is built on a philosophical and ideological structure that allows the individual exhibiting high levels of Tumas to be all that they can be. And Fukuyama, in his passage that we reviewed, was saying if Western Republican democracies lose their willingness to defend the individual's freedom to let their Tumas loose, the consequences will be bad for many. And when I look around America in 2023, I see a system that is increasingly hell-bent on squelching Tumas Individually and as a society. Now, in closing episode 105, allow me to go back to where I started off, which was the topic of summer. Talking summer reminds me of summer nights, as in the song, or actually, songs, as in plural. Two songs in the albums the songs appear on just ooze the feel of summer. Now, the first song titled Summer Nights that comes to mind is the more famous of the two because it was a hit single off the movie soundtrack album, Grease. That album soundtrack was released this month back in 1978 and sold over 10 million copies, spent months at number one on the U.S. and U.K. charts. And Summer Nights was a duet by Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta. You couldn't get away from that soundtrack in the summer of 78. And when I drive by the public pools around Pittsburgh, where I used to hang out as a little kid that summer in 1978, the songs off that album start playing in my head. It's almost just automatic. The uh, soundtrack posted several hit singles. It succeeded in putting Frankie Valli back at the top of the singles chart for the first time in 16 years with the single Grease. And when I think of the album Grease and its hit songs like Summer Nights, I don't think first of a musical or the chords or the rhythm. The first thing that comes to my mind over everything else when I hear those songs is summer. The album, Grease, is first and foremost a seasonal work of art. Now, the second song titled Summer Nights had a good run of its own, but this time in the summer of 1986, it was off the first album from Van Halen. It featured Sammy Hagar on lead vocals in place of the departed or fired, depending on your view, uh, founding lead singer David Lee Roth. And this Summer Nights, actually, this song was the first song that Sammy Hagar recorded with Van Halen when he joined the band in 1985. They started playing random music that Eddie worked up in the studio, and Sammy Hagar improvised the first line on the spot, which was Summer Nights in My Radio. The rest of the song came together organically, and then the rest of the album, 5150, came together for the big release in 1986. Now, that album was a huge sort of hit and everywhere in the summer of 1986, which was, by the way, the summer after I graduated high school and before I started out at college, a perfect way to sum me up in the summer of 1986 can be found in the lyrics of another seasonal song about summer. I think it's All Summer Long is the name of it. My thoughts were short, my hair was long, caught somewhere between a boy and a man. Wasn't that the truth? But today my thoughts are deeper and my hair is shorter, and I will share some of the former in next week's episode. Use sunscreen out there. We'll talk again next week.